History of European Theatre podcast, and thanks for joining me on this journey through millennia of theatrical history. Episode 80, Montebanks, Charlatans and the Origins of the Commedia dell'arte. Last time, when we travelled through the perspective theatres of the Italian Renaissance, I was discussing some of the grandest and finest theatre buildings in the country. In fact, if you think back to the two episodes on the Italian rebirth and the following episode on La Pellegrina, the comedy performed for a royal Italian wedding, most of the Italian theatre that I have discussed so far was theatre for the princely court, the ducal festivals, the salons and the public theatres attended by, in general, the upper and newly wealthy mercantile classes and was largely deferent to its patrons and their desire to please the church. Unlike in Spain, England and to an extent in France, The Italian theatre didn't develop a playhouse that catered for all. But there was theatre for the masses, and it has had a lasting influence on theatre ever since, which in many respects is a greater influence than that left by the courtly presentations and plays directed at the wealthier classes. The influence of Ariosto and Machiavelli and the other playwrights can be seen in later European works, but if there is one form that infiltrated the general consciousness of theatrical comedy on the continent, It is this people's theatre. This is the Commedia dell'arte. There has been a lot of debate over the years about the origins of the Commedia dell'arte, but it can be summarised into three schools of thought. One argues that the origins can be traced back to Roman mime theatre. The second suggests that medieval mystery plays contain the embryo of the form, while the third puts the origins in the less defined realm of medieval folklore and non-religious theatre. But before looking at these options in a little more detail, I should define what we mean by Commedia dell'arte as it emerged in the Italian Renaissance. The term Commedia dell'arte translates to comedy of the profession or comedy of professional artists. So that doesn't tell us a lot apart from the importance of the concept of professional. However, the full name of the form, Commedia dell'arte al improviso, gives a better sense. The arte part of the name refers to the professional acting guild that had been established, and improviso to the spontaneous elements of the performance. So we have troops of actors dedicated to professional, improvised comedy, and only those in the guild were considered expert enough to be on stage to play a piece without being tied to learned lines and a defined script. Such a loose definition can be a little frustrating, but in this case it's not inappropriate. We can go a little deeper and characterise the work as comic, topical, improvised but heavily reliant on stock characters and familiar plot lines. The fact is that as a literary or performance genre it is extremely difficult to define because the definition here cannot be made on the basis of subject matter but by the peculiarity of its form. So not a dissimilar problem to my earlier attempts to define Roman mime and pantomime. However, in this case, The improvisational element speaks to the transitory nature of the Commedia dell'arte. The work was the creation of the individual actors who played it and was augmented according to the particulars of a location or current or local events. But although the improvisational element has long been regarded as a defining feature, in fact the plays were not entirely improvised. Standard plots that could be adjusted were well known to each member of the troupe. So well known indeed that any slip-up in a performance was surely a rarity, hence we come back to the concept of professionalism. It was the dialogue in particular that was by and large left to the inspiration of the moment. 
Although always tending to the comic, the breadth of subject matter was broad. When Shakespeare introduced the playing troupe visiting the court at Elsinore in Hamlet, he was poking fun at the many different forms of Italian theatre. The claim by the leader of the troupe is that they are capable of performing tragedy, comedy, history, pastoral, pastoral comical, historical pastoral and tragical comical historical pastoral. This was all of the Italian theatre summarised for comic effect and the Commedia dell'arte troupe covered most of that. The form is also well known for its use of masks, but we can't think of it as just masked playing in the sense of the form that became popular in England a little later under the likes of Ben Jonson. The English form was a court entertainment by masked singers and dancers, and although they could be very grand, elaborate and therefore expensive to produce, they were limited in their audience and intention. Mask, as used in Commedia dell'arte, was used to heighten the comic effect of stock characters to create a grotesque and to increase the comic engagement with the audience. The masks featured exaggerated and twisted features that were intended to make the character type being portrayed instantly recognisable. We'll look at masks and characters of the Commedia dell'arte in more detail next time, but for the moment we just need to recognise that masks were used in a particular way but were also part of a long masking tradition in the theatre and the characters being portrayed were not unique to Commedia dell'arte. They were also common in other forms of Italian comedy. Another big feature of the plays was the comic business associated with them, but this again appears in other forms of theatre. Think of the devils with their pointy sticks and fireworks chasing around the medieval stage, or the physical practical joking of many of the Shakespearean fools. Which leaves the unique element of Commedia dell'arte as the improvisational one. But as I mentioned, this too has to be qualified. The plays were improvised to an extent, but also relied on common plots and other elements that were often repeated. In fact, not only was the scenario or plot outline written in some detail, with entrances and exits noted, but each player possessed a book that he filled with compositions, either original or borrowed, suitable to his role. One actor rarely took more than one kind of part, whether he learned or improvised it. So, for example, if he was young, handsome and sentimental, he was cast as one of the young lovers and memorised passages of Petrarchan lament applicable to his situation in general, or rhapsodic praise to be aimed at the object of his desires. If the actor's skill lay in performing the vocal tremors of old age, then he played the pedant doctor or the lean and slippered pantaloon, making up long nonsensical speeches full of apparently wise counsels that were somehow also meaningless or foolish. Put all of these not entirely unique elements together and you get something that is significantly different from what had gone before. Winfred Smith, who produced a still respected survey of the Commedia dell'arte close on a hundred years ago, summed it up well when she said, The materials making up the Commedia dell'arte should be recognised as nothing but the contents of a kind of general property box. Tricks of the trade, demanding not so much great as superficial readiness of technique. Just why the Italians were able to use these professional tools more freely and effectively than their foreign rivals is ultimately perhaps inexplicable. Yet one reason for the fact is pretty clearly that dramatists of great talent were rarer in Italy than elsewhere, and that such men who did write for the stage were entirely aristocratic and academic in training and sympathies. Consequently, a large portion of literary plays are narrow in their appeal and imitative and unconvincing in their art. Very well put, I think.
So much for definitions. Now, back to the origin story. Is there a direct line to these three former stars of theatre, or does the Commedia dell'arte emerge as a distinct form from an amalgamation of the three mixed with an uncertain recipe? The idea that Commedia dell'arte could have been derived via a direct route from Roman theatre was an early one, coming as soon as the form of theatre became recognised for its popularity. However, this was an assumption rather than fact based on some firm evidence. As we know, the admirers and creators of formal Italian theatre looked back to Rome for their inspiration and had a strong desire for everything to lead back there. Unable to deny the popularity of the Commedia dell'arte, they excused and justified it by attributing it some assumed Roman heritage. They argued, without much evidence, that Roman mime and pantomime and even Atalan farce, that very early form of Roman comedy, were the ancestors of this new popular form. Such a pedigree gave popular theatre a weight and a heft that they could get behind and, I suppose, allowed them the guilty pleasure of enjoying the comedy for themselves. That argument was enhanced in 1727 when, from the ashes of Herculaneum, the near neighbour of Pompeii, which suffered the same fate as that more famous neighbour in the eruption of Vesuvius in 79 CE, a statue was dug up that looked remarkably like a 16th century Italian clown, beaked-nosed, hunchbacked and all. The character could be positively identified as Maccus, a character from Attilan Farce. This apparent missing link was leapt on with enthusiasm, and scholars tried to further solidify the Roman link to the Commedia dell'arte through study of Roman masks, the etymology of the character names, and the premise that Attilan Farce was also a largely improvised form of drama. Much of this is now discredited, as studies of etymology have moved on a long way since the 18th century and lost much of the Roman bias that they had then. And once superstition and historical coincidences are allowed for, what remains is only some wafer-thin evidence which hardly deserves the name. To this day, little is known for certain of the true content and nature of Attilan farce, and only relatively little about Roman mime and pantomime. So we cannot deny the possibility of a link but we can look elsewhere for stronger contenders. Another school of thought tried to argue that Commedia dell'arte was the inheritor of a supposed strain of non-religious drama, sometimes called profane drama, that survived through the medieval period. Filled with many reasonable assumptions about the improvisational, comedic and itinerant nature of this type of theatre, The issue with this theory is the same as with the Roman connection. The lack of evidence means it can't be proved. Medieval scholars generally accept that there probably was a form of non-religious theatre that survived amongst travelling troops and that it provided entertainments for the populace that the church frowned on but tolerated to one degree or another and that this was very likely satiric, comic, improvisational and mimetic by its nature. But no scripts or other evidence survive, so any direct attribution of antecedents remains elusive. The third strand of thinking suggested that the Commedia dell'arte developed as a secular offshoot of medieval cycle or mystery plays. This idea is based on the similarity of some of the characters, their typical behaviours and the use of masks and the stage business that the comic characters in the cycle plays engaged in. Although there are undoubtedly similarities in some respects, there is, again, no direct evidence for a link. Some of these elements are also present in Renaissance period Latin plays, and were present in Roman theatre and even Greek New Comedy. 
So perhaps all we are seeing is that common character types and some of the things that make people laugh have not changed so much over the centuries. Perhaps what we're looking at is a slow and organic change from the religious medieval theatre to the secular theatre of the Renaissance. But a link that we can more safely assume is that at some point, maybe in the 16th century, actors who had appeared as amateurs or semi-professionals in the last of the cycle plays could see their decline coming, and they decided to take the plunge and transferred their talents to a proto-professional, secular group who became the troupe that developed Commedia dell'arte into the form that it solidified into. It's not until the middle of the 16th century that Commedia dell'arte as we know it appears. That is, a play with an outline plot, filled with improvised dialogue, using recognisable character types, costume and masks, and performed by a unified troupe of actors. Exactly where, how and why actors converged and produced this particular form remains a complex question, but not one where we necessarily have to look too far from the origin point. In Italy, thanks to the encouragement and perhaps more significantly the patronage of the princes and dukes of the individual cities and statelets, troops of actors existed as part of household staff and as occasional travellers as they were gifted and loaned from one patron of rank to another. Some may have been allowed, even encouraged, to go out and earn additional income, or at least relieve their patron from the expense of their upkeep for some portion of the year. Carnival, morality plays, acrobatic performances, dancing and musical entertainment existed as part of the secular and street entertainments of the day. Some were periodically curtailed, but the Italian entertainment scene, although fragmented thanks to the nature of the divisions of the land, was thriving to a point where actors could see a means of employment that didn't rely on a patronage or travelling from court to court. So either by becoming players who performed exclusively for the general public, or by patrons who realised that they could enhance their prestige with their subjects by allowing their troupe to entertain the masses for a few months of the year, when their presence wasn't required so much in the great houses and courts, the actors moved out of the confines of patronage and looked to perform plays that appealed to the paying audience. That encouraged them to bring topicality, immediacy and not a little irreverence to the plays, alongside the comedy that was tried and tested. The skills that didn't pre-exist were developed, or actors moved on to other things if improvisation was not for them, and the Commedia dell'arte troupe and style was born. Certainly Italy, in the late 15th and the 16th centuries, was a suitable breeding ground for such a development. But that is not to forget that actors were still considered pretty much the lowest of the low in society, despite the enthusiasm of patrons. Away from courts, the travelling players who turned up on the feast day at the carnival or at the county fair were still considered montebanks and charlatans, who were as likely to rob as entertain you. They were often associated with sellers of charms and quack potions, fortune tellers and tricksters. For all that they might be part of a guild and professional in their demonstration of their skills on the temporary stages that they built, they still needed a lookout in some places to spot the approaching authorities who were ready to shut them down at a moment's notice just for being there or if some offence was detected. There's a detailed description of such entertainment in Venice in 1608 by the English traveller Thomas Coyote. A native of Somerset, he travelled to Venice from Oxford on foot and is sometimes referred to as the first backpacker. He also is credited with introducing the fork to England as a culinary device 
and the word umbrella, thanks to his description of how Italians shielded themselves from the sun. The published version of his travels through France, Italy, Switzerland and Germany and the Netherlands, published as Coyotes Crudities, hastily gobbled up in five months' travel in France and Italy and co., includes five pages on the theatricals of Venice. He was impressed by the activity of the Montebanks and Charlatans who were performing twice a day. Both of these words are anglicisations of Italian words. He says that they performed in the first part of St Mark's Street that reacheth betwixt the west front of St Mark's Church and the opposite front of St Geminian's Church. I'm going to update his language slightly from here on in for clarity, but he continues... After the whole level of them were gotten up on stage, where for some, with wizards being disguised like fools in a play, some that are women are attired with habits according to their person that they sustain. After they are all upon the stage, the music begins, sometimes vocal, sometimes instrumental, sometimes both together. This music is a preamble and introduction to the ensuing matter. In the meantime, while the music plays, the principal mountebank, which is the captain and ringleader of all the rest, opens his trunk and sets out his wares. After the music has ceased, he makes an oration to the audience of half an hour long or up to an hour, wherein he doth most hyperbolically extol the virtues of his drugs and confections, though many of them are very counterfeit and false. Truly I often wondered at many of these natural orators for they would tell their tales with such admirable volubility and pleasurable grace, even extempore, and seasoned with the singular variety of elegant jests and witty conceits, that they did often strike admiration into strangers that never had heard them before. And by how much more eloquent these naturalists are, by so much the greater audience they draw unto them, and more where they sell. After the chief Montebank's first speech is ended, he delivered out his commodities little by little the jester still playing his part, and musicians singing and playing upon their instruments. And he later adds, The head Montebank, at every time that he delivereth out anything, maketh an extempore speech, which he doth often intermingle with such savoury jests, but spiced now and then with singular scurrility, that they minister passing mirth and laughter to the whole company, which perhaps may consist of a thousand people that flock together to one of their stages. The Venice Montebank described by Coyat are not simply performers. After the oration to the audience of half an hour long, the head Montebank opens his trunk and delivereth out his commodities, which are mainly oils, sovereign waters, amorous songs printed, apocryphary drugs and a commonwealth of other trifles. As salesmen, only when they have sold as much ware as they can do they remove their trinkets from the stage till the next morning. Coyette's wonder at watching these improvised performers strongly suggests that he was attending something that was not seen in England. The performances of Montebanks and Charlatans as an essentially Italian phenomenon that caught the English imagination is shown in a number of texts. In Ben Jonson's Volpone, for example, there is a scene set in a Venice piazza, in which the protagonist, performing as a quack doctor, pretends to be one Scotto of Mantua, a real Italian Montebank who was known to have performed in England. In that scene, the performance is attended by two Englishmen who, like Coyat, seem to be new to this kind of show and are similarly impressed by what they see. 
In the play, the Montebank makes some extraordinary claims for his magical potions, saying that they will cure the malcardio, cramps, convulsions, paralysis, epilepsies, tremor, cordia, retired nerves, ill vapours of the spleen, stoppings of the liver, the stone and the stangui, and hernia ventosa, and that it also stops a dysenteria immediately, easeth the torsion of the small guts, and cures melancholia hypochondria. Sounds amazing. Both Johnson and Croyette capture the dual nature of the charlatan, a figure halfway between a healer and an entertainer, which was not so strange at the time, as healing was often a very public event. It has to be noted that in Italy, the word charlatano could be used to describe someone as a seller of medicines or as a street actor. Coriat also attended a comedy performed at a theatre and says the place was very beggarly and base in comparison to our stately playhouses in England. Of the actors, he is equally disparaging, saying that they cannot compare with us for apparel, shows and music. There is a suggestion that this is just culture shock for him, especially when he saw women acting on the stage. He's kind in his appreciation of the female actors, saying that they performed with as good a grace, action, gesture and whatsoever convenient for a player as I ever saw in any masculine actor. But female actors were something that were still not acceptable in England at the time, although he does leave the tantalising comment of female actors that I have heard that it hath been sometimes used in London. Coyat, in effect, noted the structural differences between English and Italian theatre. The presence of women on stage, the activity of the Montebank in close association with the performance, and the improvised nature of the comedic offering. But there were similarities too, like the intrinsic support of musicians and acrobats, and, sadly, the low esteem in which the performers were held. There was little distinction between the Italian Montebanks and charlatans and the English thieves and beggars the actor often being the common denominator. The concern about professional beggars in society, which more often than not included actors and other performers, was already a long-standing one. The first pamphlet on the subject to be published was from Urbino in 1484, and that was only the first in a long succession of pamphlets that were published across Europe through the 16th century that attempted to define and offer solutions to the problem. One of the reasons why actors were caught up in this issue was that beggars were thought to be skilled at disguising themselves with costume and makeup, and at performing ailments or illnesses to engender the sympathies of the generous. There's a sense that these displays were a form of entertainment, and therefore linked intrinsically to the actors who were, after all, strangers who visited your community for a short time before moving on again, and who arrived and left with an air of mystery. The character of the Montebank, the charlatan, the quack doctor, who was part physician, part astrologer, part magician, is surely a direct influencer of the doctor character in Commedia dell'arte, who speaks in similar tones using the techniques of the snake oil salesman. And of course, the quack doctor had long featured in comedy in theatre, from the ancient Greeks forward, and in folk tales where a doctor often provides a resolution to a plot that speaks to the passing of the seasons and the transitory nature of life. So this is nothing new, but a time when the line between real life and art imitating life seems to have become particularly ill-defined and porous. The earliest firm evidence for something that is recognisably Commedia dell'arte is from 1545, 
and the earliest record of a Commedia dell'arte company is from 1568, where a company called the Compagnia dei Gelosi, the Company of the Jealous Ones, is recorded. Their name derives from their motto, which translates to We are jealous of attaining virtue, fame and honour. The troupe was formed in Milan under the lead actor Flaminio Scala and acquired noble patronage, apparently the first group to do so. In 1574, they were invited to perform in Venice for the visit of King Henry III of France. Thanks to that visit and their performances in Italy, their fame spread, and they were invited to perform in Paris at the court in 1577. It was the start of a long love affair with the French, who appreciated Commedia dell'arte as much as the Italians did. The troupe toured widely in mainland Europe, from Spain to Poland, but disbanded in 1604 on the death of its leading actress. Prior to the Golosi, there are suggestions of something that could be part of the Commedia dell'arte evolving from Italian popular culture. There's a description from 1518 of an entertainment played outdoors by masked actors, but it isn't clear if these are the particular characters of the Commedia dell'arte. From about that time on, some very similar characters begin to appear as part of street amusements provided by travelling players, particularly at carnival time. At the Roman Mardi Gras of 1555, a buffoon character that very closely resembles the Commedia dell'arte is described and from 1559 there is a carnival song that's supposed to be sung by a pair of fools who again hold many similarities. That song was a madrigal, seemingly written by playwright Anton Francesco Grazzini for professional strollers to sing. The piece is called A Song of Buffoons and Parasites and includes lines that complain about the difficulty of finding work because of the discouraging number of clowns in Florence at the time. This song has been cited as the first satisfactory evidence of the existence of Commedia dell'arte, as the characters mentioned are familiar from the form, and it reads like an advertisement for a forthcoming comedy. Another song from the same time, which could easily have been part of an improvised play, includes a description by a surgeon doctor of the cures of human ailments, which would be at home in the mouth of a montebank. It seems that before 1550, there was little effort to bring together the professionals who were sporadically employed in the permanent troops attached to specific patrons. Even the theatre-loving princes of Ferrara seemed to have made no attempt to hold on to their actors that they so much admired. In February 1496, Duke Ercole d'Este wrote to Francesco Gonzaga, Marquis of Mantua, saying that he regretted not being able to send him the comedy recently given out at court. The roles for each person, he added, were written out separately and never put together, and as the actors had scattered, the comedy was lost. It seems likely that in many cases, players who made a favourable impression at one palace were not guaranteed continued engagement there, and between these moments of glory and security, the majority went back to the precarious man-to-mouth existence of the unprotected travelling player. However, during the first half of the century, there must have been great progress made in the development of a class consciousness amongst the players, and consequently in their efforts to organise their troops and to study their art. After 1550, when the public theatres began to be built, the best of the wandering bands formed into regular companies under the protection of noble patrons. There were usually about a dozen actors in one group, a number that remained surprisingly stable for the next couple of centuries. 
Typically, the leader of the troop was licensed by a prince as patron to choose his companions and was expected to recognise his first duty was to his lord. At times, he was allowed to play in public and to reap the considerable rewards that came from such representations. Probably the atmosphere of freedom and the mixed company, as well as the more certain pay, had something to do with making the actors feel more at home on the public stage. Numerous decrees and letters are extant that speak to an almost constantly changing climate that the players were supposedly protected from. In 1565, the governor of Milan prohibited all masters and players of comedies, herb sellers, charlatans, buffoons and montebanks who are used to mount their platforms and to draw a crowd around them to play on church feast days or in Lent or on stage near the church except after service, on pain of whipping. This particular governor was a Spaniard and perhaps brought his country's sensibilities with him. This was from a period when the church and the state were at particular loggerheads in Spain and an actor's life there can hardly have been worth living. Italian clerics were sometimes equally severe. The Galossi had great difficulty in persuading the authorities to allow them to play their honest and pleasing comedies in Milan and were in fact only permitted to give these performances once they had passed censorship of several learned and pious theologians. Now it would be interesting to know which of the plays, all seemingly about on a level as far as taste and morality go, this worthy jury pronounced harmless to the public. Probably they only suppressed those containing a tinge of heresy or blasphemy. Occasionally, there are traces of other limitations, such as those laid down by Sixtus V in 1588, forbidding the Compagnia de Desiosi, another Commedia troupe, to employ women in their comedies when in Rome, and further requiring them to only act by daylight. So the Commedia dell'arte was established. We will probably never pin down any line of development that is more exact than the uncertain route that I have sketched out today. It is always difficult to pick out a certain year and say, here began this or that literary or performance form, and precisely defining a genre so exactly that all or even the majority of its examples are brought under its wing is equally difficult. The rise of the Commedia dell'arte is so intimately bound up with the history of the actors and of the literary and popular drama of the 16th century, that the threads are particularly hard to disentangle, whereas the difficulty in dating the process comes from our ignorance of how many old scenarios may be lost and what proportion of rustic farces were improvised. All we have are the written scenes that have survived. Yet, perhaps a more important thing than the drawing of such hard and fast divisions is just to recognise the general relationship of the improvised plays to the actors and to the century that produced them. We are left with some of their words and the words of those who encountered them and saw something different. We have some good ideas of their costuming and even of the people who were the improvising performers. But also we have their look, those grimmest and twisted features of the masks that stare at us down the centuries. Grotesque, maybe mocking, perhaps frightening, but also most certainly comic. Next time, we will stay with the Commedia dell'arte and take a closer look at the characters they created and the nature of their performance. There were five main character types who, along with their masks and costumes, remain recognisable to this day, so you will find much that seems quite familiar 
in this 400-year-old art form. In the meantime, please do have a look at the website where I have some additional content and blogs supporting various episodes from all seasons of the podcast. That's at www.thehistoryofeuropeantheatre.com and I've put a link in the show notes. There are also links in the show notes to coffee.com in case you feel like sending me a one-off tip or to the Patreon members area where there is lots of additional audio content that you get instant access to for a small monthly fee. Thanks for being there and thanks for listening. Please do spread the word about the podcast and I look forward to your company next time. But if you do have any comments or concerns in the meantime, you can always contact me by email at thoetp at gmail.com or via Twitter at thoetp. Mm-hmm.